I want to ask you please to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. This morning we'll be looking at verses 17 to 31. Mark chapter 10. If you're using one of our new pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1021. When you've located Mark 10, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let us pray. God, as we come once again to your holy word, we ask, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive the truth, to understand it. And by your spirit, God, use it to transform us into the image of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. There is no more important question than the one that is asked and answered in the verses we just read. And here's the question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question you see in verse 17. In verses 23 through 27, three times you see Jesus use this phrase. He talks about entering the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to enter the kingdom of God? It all refers to what do I do to have a place in heaven? That's what this story is about. How can I maintain health 
is, is an important question. You know, how can I keep my health good? But that question is not nearly as important as the question, how do I inherit eternal life? How can I provide sufficiently for my retirement years? That's another important question. But it's not nearly as important as the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Consider this. There's only one alternative to going to heaven. And no matter how wonderful your life on earth may be, it will mean nothing if you die and go to hell. In his training of his 12 disciples, Jesus has been taking the traditional values of society and turning them on their heads. We've been talking about this for the last several weeks. In ancient society, the Jewish society, children were of no real significance. Childhood was just an unavoidable interim between being born and becoming an adult where you could actually contribute. But Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. Society said the great ones are those who have servants. But Jesus said the great ones are the servants themselves. He's taking the ideas and values of society and he's turning them on their heads. Now in this story, we encounter a man who everyone in society pretty much would have agreed if anybody has a place in heaven, it's this man. But Jesus says, not so fast. Once again, in this section of verses we're looking at, Jesus takes society's way of thinking and he turns it on its head. In these verses, Jesus is teaching us this. Only those who are willing to abandon everything to follow Jesus will inherit eternal life. I'll say that again. Only those who are willing to abandon everything to follow Jesus will inherit eternal life. I think that message will become clear as we look at four things these verses tell us about inheriting eternal life here's the first thing these verses tell us about inheriting eternal life number one you ready you are not good enough here we have a man who comes to Jesus in verse 17 he asks a question his question is both sincere and serious you notice it says he runs up to Jesus and kneels. This isn't a casual inquiry. You remember sometimes the religious leaders of Jesus' day would ask him a question trying to trap him in his words, trying to trip him up. That's not at all what this man's doing. He runs and he falls on his knees before Jesus. He's serious. His question is sincere. And his question tells us a couple of things. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? First of all, we see this man believes in life after death. He believes in the resurrection of the dead and eternal life in the kingdom of God, clearly. And there's something else his question tells us. He knows that eternal life can't be taken for granted. He can't just assume that he has eternal life. So he wants to know 
What do I have to do to be entitled to a place in heaven? And I want you to notice, this is important. He calls Jesus good teacher. Now that's unusual. To call Jesus teacher was not unusual. But good teacher stands out. One reason that stands out is because Mark never uses this word to describe a person. Except for right here. And, and, and Jesus catches the man he calls him good teacher. And Jesus uses that word good. He uses what this man says to teach him a very important lesson. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here's the lesson Jesus teaches this man. No one is truly good but God. Now keep that in mind. And we'll move on. Keep that in mind. No one is good but God. In, in verse 19, Jesus points the man to the commandments. The man says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the Ten Commandments. And Jesus lists what we call the second table of the law. The last six of the commandments. He lists them in verse 19. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. That's not one of the Ten Commandments. But he puts that in the place of do not covet. To defraud is one example of what it means to covet. To defraud is uh, to take what belongs to somebody else by some illicit means. So he's essentially pointing to the commandment do not covet. And then he says honor your father and mother. So he goes through the list of the, the last six commandments. All the sins that involve the way we interact with other people. Now notice what the man says in verse 20. Jesus points him to the law of God. What does the man say in verse 20? Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now we hear that. Lord, I, I've kept all these commandments since I was a kid. And we might think to ourselves that this man is a little arrogant or insincere. But that's not the case. The man doesn't say he never violated a single command. Only that when he did violate a command, he did what the Old Testament law required him to do to be reconciled to God. He took the steps prescribed so that he could righten his relationship with God. You know, we don't just have the rules of the Old Testament, but God tells him what to do when they break the rules. So he's just saying, I've done what the, the, the law teaches since I was a kid. And here's something else I need you to think about. To keep the commandments outwardly was possible. I want you to think about something the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 verse 6. Paul here is talking about the man he was before he came to Christ, became a Christian. This is what he said. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, Paul says, when I was under the religion of the Jews, I was blameless if you just looked at me according to the written law. Now, no one is blameless if you look at the heart. But as far as outwardly, Paul kept the rules. That's what this man is telling Jesus. 
I, I've kept the rules. And I want you to notice something. Jesus does not rebuke the man for arrogance or for being prideful. And Jesus doesn't dispute the man's claim to have obeyed the law. Jesus didn't say, you haven't kept the law. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't dispute. He doesn't rebuke the man. In fact, look what it says in verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. Far from rebuking the man, it says Jesus Loved him. Looking at, the word looking at means to look at intently. It means Jesus saw into this man's heart. And when he saw this man's heart, he loved him. What does that tell us? There is no hypocrisy and insincerity in this man. He's not faking it. He's sincere. Here is a man who genuinely sought to walk according to the law of God. And at least externally, on the outside, he did walk according to God's law. Not only that, but he's a wealthy man. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you see, in Jewish society, wealth was considered to be a mark of God's blessing. You see, so the Jews would have thought this is a man who pleases God because God has blessed him and given him great wealth. So what I'm trying to get you to see is from the perspective of the Jews, this is a man who is a prime candidate for a place in heaven. He, he is a sincere, genuine man who has lived his life according to God's rules. As good as anyone could. He's sincere. And people would have considered him blessed by God because he was wealthy. So they're thinking, surely this is a man who's got a place in heaven. But notice what Jesus says to him in verse 21. One thing you lack. One thing you lack. Think about this. All that this man had going for him wasn't enough. Greatly blessed by God, absolutely. A, a man who had lived according to the rules as much as anybody could if he did. A man who was sincere, absolutely. From all appearances, this is a good man. Now here's where I'll take you back to verse 18. No one is good Except God alone. The only problem with saying this is a good man is that there is no such thing. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Listen very carefully. No one will go to heaven because they were a good person. 
Why do you say that, preacher? Because compared to God, there are no good people. No one is good but God. That's not my word. That's the word of Jesus, the one who is himself God. Here's the second thing I want you to see. What do these verses tell us about inheriting eternal life? First of all, you're not good enough to inherit eternal life. Second of all, there is a cost involved. There is a cost involved. We see this in verse 21 and 22. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, Jesus is not just asking this man to give up his earthly possessions. He's calling for a total change in this man's lifestyle. He's asking the man, sell everything you've got, give to the poor, and come and join me and my disciples. In other words, he was inviting this man to become a part of that inner group of disciples who didn't have any possessions of their own, but they shared their possessions. And they depended on the material support given to them by others. Trade your lavish lifestyle and come and join this community of followers who share everything and depend on the kindness of others. Now let's be very, very clear. Selling all his possessions and giving it to the poor would not earn him a place in heaven. No, 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 no. He would have treasure in heaven because he followed Jesus. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. He loved his money too much to sacrifice his money in order to follow Jesus. The problem was not that he had money. The problem was that his money was a barrier to him following Jesus. Look what it says in verse 22. At these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Listen. His wealth and status in society had more power in his life than the word of Jesus and the kingdom of God. This is a man who had immense respect for Jesus as a teacher. He runs to him. He kneels before him. But he was not willing to commit his life to Jesus at the expense of all that he had. You remember the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 34? He summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and following me. Following Jesus is the one thing that qualifies for entering the kingdom of God, obtaining salvation and eternal life. You must follow Jesus. But following Jesus can be costly. Here's why. Anything that would stand in the way of absolute allegiance and faithfulness to Jesus must be relinquished. I want to say that again. Anything that would keep you 
from absolute allegiance and faithfulness to Jesus must be relinquished if you're going to follow him. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10, 37 and 38. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Let me add to that list a little bit. He who loves money more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. He who loves reputation more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. He who loves earthly pleasure more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. He who loves comfort more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. He who loves anything more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. Listen to me very carefully. The issue in this story is not just money. It's about far more than money. It's about anything that would stand in the way of you following Jesus, whether it be pride or possessions or pleasure or whatever. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God made Abraham, who at the time was called Abram, God made him a great, great promise. But that promise involved a cost. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Yahweh said to Abraham, Go forth from your land, from your kin, from your father's house, to a land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. You'll bless those who bless you. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a great promise. But do you remember what came right before it? Go from your land, from your family, from your father's house. He didn't even know where he was going, but he had to leave everything to follow God's call. There was a cost involved. Listen, eternal life, a place in heaven, cannot be earned. It is a gift of God's grace to all who follow Jesus. But... Following Jesus can be costly. Here's the third thing I need to show you about inheriting eternal life. It's only possible with God. It's only possible with God. Look at verse 23. After the rich man walks away, Jesus says to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now here's something you have to understand. From the perspective of Jesus' disciples, that statement seems counterintuitive. We know that because of verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. You see, the rich were seen as those who were blessed by God. The rich were seen as those with whom God was pleased. Think about it. Wealthy people had the means and they had the opportunity to give to the poor and to do good deeds that would express their commitment to God. These are the kind of people they thought surely would have a place in the kingdom. But the disciples are blown away when they hear that. That's not at all what they expect. And Jesus sees the astonishment on their faces. But does Jesus back up? Now he doesn't let up at all. Matter of fact, he repeats his statement. Verse 24. His disciples were amazed at his words, 
But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. This time he drops the rich. It's just hard, period. Verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean when he says hard to enter the kingdom? He means impossible. A camel was the largest animal in Palestine. Just the thought of a camel going through the eye of a needle is ridiculous. It's not just impossible, it's beyond impossible. Now there are some who have tried to say, well what Jesus is referring to is there was, a, there was a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the needle's eye. And a camel could go through it, but the only way he could go through it was to strip all of the baggage off of him and he had to get down on his knees and crawl through. I'll say two things about that. First of all, there's absolutely no historical evidence that such a gate ever existed or that there was ever a gate called the needle's eye. Secondly, if that were true, that absolutely destroys the whole point Jesus is trying to make in this text. Jesus is not trying to just say it's hard, you have to do hard things to get to heaven. It's not at all what he's saying. Look at verse 26. They were even more astonished, said to him, then who can be saved? Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible. What does he mean by hard? He means impossible. Think about it. Jesus said, imagine a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle. Even if it's a small camel and a big needle. It's so impossible, it's ridiculous. But Jesus said, it's even easier for that to happen than for a rich man to get to heaven. So notice what the disciples say. Now we're not just talking about rich getting to heaven, but anyone. Did you catch their question? Then who can be saved? They didn't just say who among the rich can be saved. They said who, period, who anyone. If what you're saying is true, how can anybody get to heaven? What does Jesus say? With people, it is impossible. Why is it impossible for people to get to heaven without God? First of all, no one is good. Nobody qualifies for heaven. Nobody. Second, left to himself, left to herself, a person would never willingly sacrifice everything to follow Jesus. Left in their own sinful condition, people will not abandon everything to follow Jesus. So here's the question, how in the world does anybody ever get saved? Verse 27 tells us, with people it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. God. 
Listen very carefully. It is what God does that makes eternal life possible. Not what you do. It was God who sent his son to pay the penalty that your sin deserves. It is God who gives us credit for Jesus' perfect life. You know, Jesus didn't earn your salvation simply by dying on the cross. He lived the perfect life. He earned the righteousness that you need to be declared right in God's sight. And He gives you credit for His perfect life just as if you had lived it. God did that. God is the one who by His Spirit does a supernatural work in our hearts and grants us the faith to believe and the willingness to follow Jesus. How does anybody ever come to the place that they genuinely believe in Jesus and they're willing to forsake everything to follow Him? They do that because God has done a work in their heart. Ephesians 2.8 By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift. Everyone, including the disciples, thought surely this rich man qualifies for heaven. But Jesus is saying, no, he doesn't. Nobody does. Nobody qualifies for heaven. And listen to me, friend, that includes you. You don't qualify. Jesus does not say with rich people, it's impossible. He says with people, period, it's impossible. As in with all people. The rich man loved his money too much to give it up to follow Jesus. Some people love their comfort too much to give it up to follow Jesus. Some people love pleasure too much to give it up to follow Jesus. Here's the bottom line. People love their sin too much to give it up to follow Jesus. Mankind is enslaved by sin of every sort imaginable. And the, and the only thing, the only thing that will break those chains and set a free man to follow Jesus, set a man free to follow Jesus, the only thing that can do that is a supernatural act of God. Those who are lost without Jesus are in chains. They're slaves of sin. And nothing can break those chains but a miracle work of God. Let me say it to you like this. You will not inherit eternal life until you realize there is nothing you can do to qualify for eternal life. You remember not long ago we, we studied the words of Jesus when He says, if you're going to get to heaven, you're going to be in the kingdom, you have to receive the kingdom of God like a child. You must come as one who is utterly helpless and totally dependent. That's the problem with this rich man. He can only get to heaven if he comes to Jesus who has nothing, who is completely dependent on God, who has forsaken his own goodness and is willing to come to Jesus like a child, empty-handed, 
depending totally on Jesus. Listen, nobody's good enough. It's only possible with God. Thankfully, God has done, through Jesus, God has done what is necessary to make it possible. Amen? Here's the fourth thing I want to show you about inheriting eternal life. It will be worth the cost. Remember we said following Jesus is a cost involved, but it will be worth the cost. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Now, Peter is not implying that they had done what Jesus told the rich man to do. Jesus told the rich man to sell everything he had, give it to the poor, and come follow Jesus. That's not something Jesus commands all followers of Christ to do. And that's not what the disciples did. They did not sell everything they had, give it all away, and renounce their family ties. What the disciples did do was they left their homes, they left their families, they left their possessions, and they left their way of life in order to be with Jesus full time and be trained by him. It was still very much a sacrifice. But they didn't rid themselves of all possessions. See, this whole ordeal with the rich man, Jesus' conversation with this rich man, has Peter wondering if the sacrifice that he and the other disciples made would count for anything. Lord, in light of what you told this rich man, he was unwilling to leave his possessions, but what about those of us who did leave our possessions? What about us? Will what we did count for anything? Verse 29, Truly, I say to you, when you see that, some versions say, Verily I say to you. What that means is this is the truth and you can take it to the bank. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is aware that following him can be costly. It does involve giving up some things. For the disciples, they left their homes and their possessions, their jobs and their homes. What can Peter expect for his sacrifice? Well, we just read it in verse 30. A hundred times as much now in this age Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms. Should we take that literally? No. So, Brother Paul, how do you know? Okay. Look at the text. You will receive 100 times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers. Look at me. Look at me. You can't have a hundred mothers. How do I know Jesus did not literally mean you're going to receive a hundred times as much all these things? Because he couldn't have mean it literally because you can't have but one mother. Your body parts are not birthed by 40 different women and they're assembled afterward. That's not the way it works. Only one woman can give birth to you. He means this figuratively. Think about it like this. The church is the family of God. And if you've been a Christian very long, you know this is true. 
Those who are born again have a spiritual bond that is even stronger than the ties you have with some family members. You have family members, if you're truly born again, you have family members that you're not as close to as you are some of the people sitting in this room. Why? Because there's the Spirit of God inside of you and inside of them, and that creates a bond in you that no earthly ties can match. This family from Washington or Oregon, or Oregon, family from Oregon was here a few weeks ago. And by the time they left after church, I mean, it, it, there's just a, there's a camaraderie and there's a unity. And, and you know these people. love. How is that possible? It's the Spirit of God creates a unity among. Listen, there is a real sense of family. That's why in the Bible they call one another brother and sister. The elderly men become like our fathers. The elderly women become like our mothers. Others in the family of God become like our brothers and sisters. The young, we love them and we begin to see them as our own children, our concern for them. He says you'll have a hundred times more houses and farms. Listen, instead of only your home to sleep in, you will have many in the family of God who would willingly open their doors to you. Let me ask you a question. If my house were to burn down, let me rephrase that. If your house that I live in were to burn down this afternoon, would I have to go rent a hotel to sleep in tonight? I wonder how many of you would open your home to me. Yeah. How many houses do I have? Many as I need. Amen? My car broke. Somebody in God's family gave me one out of the goodness of his own heart. Jesus is saying, look, you, you get so much more back than you give up when you come to Jesus, even in this life. Now, there's a phrase in verse 30 we cannot overlook. I need to hurry. He says, you're going to receive all this along with persecutions. So following Jesus in this life is not all sunshine and rainbows. He's telling them they will be persecuted. What does that mean? To persecute someone is to seek to oppress them, harass them, inflict pain or death on them. Why? Because they're followers of Jesus. Because being a follower of Jesus in this world does not make the world love you. It makes the world hate you and oppose you. So what's going to make all that worth it? along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Following Jesus in this life is a mixed bag. There's pain and pleasure. What makes it worth it? In the age to come, you have eternal life. The absence of sin and suffering. The absence of crime and corruption. The absence of disease and death. The presence of Christ in all his glory. All of eternity to enjoy all that God is and all that God gives. That's what's going to make it all worth it. Make no mistake. Following Jesus in this life 
involves a cost. You must be willing to abandon anything and everything that would stand in the way of you following Jesus faithfully. No matter how precious it is, you have to be willing to relinquish it. You have to be willing to endure persecution if that is necessary. Even if it means extreme persecution like suffering and death. But what you lose following Christ doesn't even begin to compare to what you gain. The suffering you endure as a result of your faithfulness to Christ isn't even a fraction of the joy and pleasure you will experience in heaven. Verse 31. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Think of it this way. Following Jesus may put you last in this life. You may be last in terms of earthly possessions because you follow Jesus. You may be last in terms of earthly pleasure because you follow Jesus. You may be last in terms of earthly popularity because you follow Jesus. Oh, but when Christ returns and his kingdom is established in all of its fullness, all that's going to be reversed. Those who put themselves first in this life will suffer such a loss that everything they had and everything they enjoyed in this life will bring them absolutely no comfort whatsoever. But those who are willing to accept last place in this life for Christ's sake will receive honor and blessings that are infinitely greater than what they sacrificed in this life. What can I say about inheriting eternal life? It will be worth the cost. This text teaches us this. Only those who are willing to abandon everything to follow Jesus will inherit eternal life. When I was working on this message, I thought about this old song. See if you recognize the words to this old song. Sometimes the day seems long. Our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away. All tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Life's day will soon be o'er. All storms forever past will cross the great divide to glory safe at last. We'll share the joys of heaven, a harp, a home, a crown. The tempter will be banished. We'll lay our burdens down. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Let's pray.